Last week, I talked to two women on a sidewalk in Tehran. A mother and a daughter, aged 63 and 41. I flagged them down because they were doing something simple but radical. They were strolling with their hair uncovered, defying the mandatory dress code for women in public in Iran. You're not wearing hijab. Is that new? Did you wear one before the protest? Yes, before. I use it, but right now, no. When did you take it off? Do you remember? Maybe three or four months ago. After death of Masa Amini. Masa Amini, of course, is the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman who died in police custody in September. She was arrested, reportedly, for not wearing her headscarf correctly. Her death sparked months of protests in Iran, demands for personal freedoms, economic opportunity, even for an end to the country's theocratic regime. The government cracked down on the protests hard. Hundreds killed by security forces, rights groups say. Thousands of protesters jailed, that's according to the UN. But here, outside a mall on a drizzly Tuesday, a 63-year-old woman is still sending a message. The only thing that I can actually do at this age and what I can do now is to not have a scarf. To have the scarf or to not have the scarf for me is not very important. I'm not young to show off my hair, but I'm not wearing it to show that my views are against the government's views. What has the reaction been from your friends, from the rest of your family? I have a respect for hijab because my sister wears the hijab, my mother wears it. My friends at the beginning, they were a bit worried and they would tell me to wear the hijab. But I told them that you ha- if you don't believe in the hijab, you have to show your opinion. An old lady came and told me, well done, you're not wearing the hijab. I want to not wear the hijab myself, but my hair isn't dyed. <laughs> and then I told her, my hair isn't dyed as well, just take the hijab off. <laughs> Consider this. The regime may have put a lid on the protests, but frustration, desperation, and anger are bubbling away beneath it. On the streets of Tehran, people tell us this isn't over. I don't think that Iran will ever go back to before Hamas Ami's death. They might try, but uh, the society will not ever go back. We have suffered so much and we have become so brave that uh, we will never go back. From NPR, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's Friday, February 17th. It's Consider This from NPR. One night last week, I was in my hotel in Tehran, working, writing up a story, when explosions crackled across the sky. It was the eve of Revolution Day, marking the anniversary of the 1979 revolution, and the regime was kicking things off with a fireworks display. But as we leaned out the windows to listen, it was another sound that stood out. Death to the dictator, they're chanting. Death to Khamenei. Freedom. Anti-government chants, the same ones shouted at the protests that have shaken Iran in these five months since the death of Masa Amini. That moment, straining to listen, straining to hear who was chanting, watching for other windows softly opening and closing in the apartment buildings around us, it encapsulated the fault lines in Iran. 
It told a very different story from the one Iran's government has worked to promote about what is happening in the country. We're going to spend these next 10 minutes considering the state of dissent in Iran. Where do the protests go from here? We're going to take you now to three places. First up, we leave Tehran, drive straight south about five hours, and arrive in Isfahan. That's a city of some two million people in central Iran. We've been told the shopkeepers of Isfahan are famous for making you buy something without your even noticing. And sure enough, within a few hours of arrival, we find ourselves in the bazaar chatting with a carpet seller who, like others we interviewed for this story, we have agreed not to identify by name. He showed us his English workbook. He's taking a class, but you'll also hear our interpreter jumping in. How is business? No, is not good. Four months ago, five months ago, a little better. And how much do you think this has to do with Masa Amini? Masa Amini. She's changed life in Urania. How? Well, they killed her. What can I say? You're very quiet. Is it scary to talk? Yes. I really cry for uh, her Masa Amini. Three days. Three days? Yes. Because a whole nation loved her. You didn't know her, so is it because of something she represented to you? What was that? She's now a symbol. symbol. She's a symbol yeah. Or, yeah. of what? Iranian people. Woman, life, freedom. Can you tell me why are you frightened to say this? Because I'm here in Iran. Because I am here in Iran, he says. A few steps outside his shop, in the middle of Isfahan's magnificent Nakshe Jahan Square, I meet a woman, 21 years old, sharing french fries out of a waxed paper cone with a young man who looks like he's trying hard to impress her. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome to Iran. Oh, thank you. I ask about the protests. She says they have struggled from lack of leadership. I mean, still, we don't have a proper leader. We didn't find anyone. I mean, an actual leader who loves people. It's hard, and our government won't go easily, but we will replace them. May I ask, did you protest? Were you involved? Um, Not as much, because, um, you know, my family didn't let me. It was so dangerous. But at university, somehow, you know, uh, like walking and uh, saying that we want our right back. How do you express that in a way that other people can hear it, in a way that the government might hear it? You know, there were a lot of uh, students there. We walked all around the university and we told some um, words uh, just telling them that not uh, setting on fire things, um, not uh, breaking down anything, just walking and telling our rights. Peaceful protest. Yeah. She says everything might look calm and normal in Iran, but the outrage, it's not over. The government um, arrested some people, they tortured them. Uh, so um, it's normal that teenagers and people get back to home and not coming out anymore. But it is not completely finished. Okay, stop number two. Back in Tehran, 
We are making our way out of the labyrinth of the Grand Bazaar and in search of lunch when we spot a group of women not wearing the mandatory headscarf, so defying the law in Iran. We stopped to talk. One of the women, 36 years old, told me through our interpreter that she did not join the protests, at least not physically, but she was active online. I have to go to court tomorrow. Why? For what? To sign a contract that she won't do it again. Because of what I was doing in Instagram. You will sign the statement? I have to. Are you still on Instagram? Yeah, I I have to stop for a while. Because if I sign the statement, then I will have to be silent. Are you worried about speaking to us? American broadcaster. Unfortunately, the situation at this time is that we are a bit worried about everything. A bit worried about everything. Well, our last stop is North Tehran, an hour-plus drive in the city's famously snarled traffic. I meet a 20-year-old woman studying psychology at university. So she is focused on the stress, the trauma that Iranians are carrying after these recent months of protests, and then the crackdown on the protests, and now uncertainty over what the future holds. What you'll hear here is just the voice of our interpreter translating. I wonder, has life, does life feel different now? Has it changed for you in any way? The psychological effect that, and pressure that has been imposed on the Iranian people, perhaps we will see the effect of this psychological pressure later on. Have the protests touched your life or have you been involved in any way? This is a political question. This is a political question. She pressed her lips together, looked pointedly at our audio recorder. We put it away. Why are you here? She wanted to know. A journalist asking these questions. Because I'm curious, I told her. I can see the protests have largely gone quiet, but I wonder if the anger that fueled them has. Another pause. And then she said, this kind of dissent, it doesn't go away. So many questions raised by that young woman and the many other people we interviewed during our time in Iran. We're going to talk through some of them now with Ali Vayas, who is director of the Iran Project at the International Crisis Group. He has been listening along with us. I want to welcome you, and I want you to start with that point she made, that the dissent does not go away. As you know, many Iranians, both inside and outside Iran, wanted these protests to be different from ones that have come before, wanted them to become more than protests, to be a revolution. Have they? Are they? You know, my view is that uh, what happened in Iran was a uh, revolution in the mindset of the Iranian people, not a revolution on the streets. The numbers did not reach critical mass. We're talking about tens of thousands of people on the streets, not hundreds of thousands and not millions. But but again, as I said, it wasn't not a revolution on the streets, but it was a revolution on and the mindset of the Iranian people because I think now there is critical mass uh, within the society uh, in understanding that this is a regime uh, that is not open to reforms, that it is not uh, able to meet the underlying grievances that gave ri- rise uh, to these protests. Uh, this is going to turn into a almost a continuous cycle of protest. And there might be ebbs and flows, but it's not going to go away. 
Uh, and eventually the stalemate will have to be broken in the interest of the Iranian people because of the simple fact that it's now the majority of the people who want fundamental change. What role, if any, should the U.S. play here? Because we interviewed some people who said, why isn't the U.S. doing more to help my country, to help democracy? We talked to plenty of other people who were very skeptical about American motives. They point back to 1953 and the U.S. helping to overthrow a democratically elected government in Iran. What, in your view, should the U.S. do? Look, I think it we have to accept the inconvenient truth that uh, its record of regime change, especially in that part of the world, is nothing but abject failure. The words um, Afghanistan and Iraq spring to mind. Go on. Absolutely. But also other cases, uh, Libya, Syria, uh, there's a long list of uh, U.S. failures. The critical point here is that while the U.S. has an impact in terms of what kind of policy it, it opts, but it's not the determining factor here. The determining factor is really what the Iranian people do because in 1979, the U.S. did not want regime change in Iran, and yet it happened. In 2011, the U.S. did not want regime change in Tunisia or in Egypt, and yet it, those regimes were toppled. Let me end by circling back to where we began, and that carpet seller in Isfahan, and his belief that Masa Amini and her death have changed Iran. To the best of your ability, trying to track things from outside the country, is that true? Absolutely. But I do believe that if it wasn't because of Masa Amini's tragic death, uh, there would have been another trigger. There, there's just so much pent-up frustrations within the Iranian society. It was a ticking bomb, and it was just a question of time before it would go off. Uh, in many ways, when I look at Iran right now, I feel it is where the Soviet Union was in the early 1980s not late 1980s, early 1980s in the sense that it's uh, a regime that is ideologically bankrupt. Uh, it is at a political dead end. It is just simply unable to address its deep economic and social problems. But it still has a will to fight. Ali Vayez of the International Crisis Group. And there's a link to more of our reporting from Iran in the episode notes. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.